Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Tweet me at ObsessiveViewer. Send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. Also, if you wish to support Anthology with your wallet, there's a donate button on AnthologyPod.com and a link in the show notes of this episode. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running, and they are very much appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing Nightmare as a Child. It's the 29th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on April 29th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on the 1963 movie The Yellow Canary, written by Rod Serling. Uh, but first, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came to Shocktober in Irvington, the event that uh, my friends and I over at the Obsessive Viewer host once per year in the Irvington area of Indianapolis, uh, where we ran out of theater and screened short horror films from local filmmakers. Um, if you're interested in Shocktober in Irvington and couldn't make it, um, then you can check out the Obsessive Viewer podcast feed for the audio of it. That should go up uh, later this week. Okay, so before I get started on my review of this episode, I'm going to go ahead and read um, a summary from The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Sikri. Um, as usual, these reviews and the summary and everything going forward is going to be extremely spoiler-heavy for Nightmare as a Child. So if you haven't seen the episode yet, go check it out on uh, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, anywhere you can find it, or DVD. Um, all right, so consider yourself warned. <laughs> Coming home from work, school teacher Helen Foley encounters Marky, a strangely serious little girl, on the stairs outside her apartment. She invites her in for a cup of hot chocolate and finds that the child seems to know her and is particularly insistent on jogging her memory about a vaguely familiar-looking man she saw earlier that day. This does not seem important until the same man arrives at Helen's door. Frightened, Marky runs out the back way. The man is Peter Selden, who worked for Helen's mother when Helen was a child and who claims to have been the first the first to find her mother's body after she was murdered, an event Helen witnessed but has blocked from her conscious mind. When she mentions Marky, Selden remarks that this was Helen's nickname as a child and shows her an old photo of herself. She and Marky are one and the same. After Selden leaves, Marky reappears. She is Helen, and she's here for a reason, to force Helen to remember her mother's death. Just then, Selden returns. He confesses to the murder and explains that he has 
tracked Helen down in order to get rid of the sole witness to his crime. He lunges at her, but she manages to get out, of, out to the hallway and push him down the stairs to his death. Thanks to the intervention of Marky, who was in fact no more than the part of herself that she did remember, trying desperately to save her, Helen survives. Okay, so before I get to my review, I'm going to go ahead and do a talent rundown of this episode. Um, so this episode stars Janice Rule as uh, Helen Foley. Uh, this is her only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, she did do one episode. She did appear in one episode of Journey to the Unknown back in 1969 in the episode titled Stranger in the Family. And as far as I could tell, that was her only science fiction anthology credit aside from The Twilight Zone. And she also appeared in the movie The Swimmer, which I will be covering soon in in the uh, near future on this podcast as a bonus review. And uh, after acting, after she gave up acting, rather, in uh, the early 90s, she became a successful psychotherapist in Manhattan, which I thought was kind of interesting, especially given this, <laughs> the context of this episode. It's kind of, kind of unique and uh, kind of, yeah, kind of interesting. Also appearing in this episode is Terry Burnham, Burnham as Marky. This is this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, and she retired from acting back in 1971, and she died in 2013 from a cardiac arrest, and um, she also had diabetes and some other medical issues. Um, and this is, from what I can tell, this is an interesting topic for Twilight Zone fans. And this is kind of a point where this podcast becomes interesting or maybe insufferable. I don't know. Um, because I'm discovering this fandom or this world of the Twilight Zone fandom at my own pace. So this is all new to me. What I mean by that is that this actress became an obsession for fans of, of the Twilight Zone. And it's, it's really unique. Like, people got like people are collected their her belongings um which sounds really morbid and really uh really crazy like things like uh, like her like her belongings photos medical records a bunch of different things and this is all because she didn't presumably didn't didn't have uh, a next of kin or anything there was no there's no family to claim these this uh these items or, or her personal belongings or anything. And the most interesting piece of trivia about her is that, um, when she, when she passed away, um, her, her remains were kind of just in, in stasis or in, in limbo in Los Angeles. And so, so the way that it works is that when, when someone passes away in Los Angeles, um, people, their next of kin is notified. If they don't have a next of kin or if no one comes forward, then there's a, after three years, the, the remains are, um, cremated and end up in a common grave in, in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles County's public cemetery. Anyone is allowed, like the people are allowed to buy the remains of people that have gone unclaimed after two years, apparently. And the remains of Terry Burnham were purchased. And, uh, uh, it's, this is 
bizarre. I'm I'm sorry. I'm okay. So her remains were were purchased by a fan of the, of the show, Ruben F- uh, Phoebus, and he received he received the authorization to get her to have her ashes transported to New York where he lived, and he paid uh, apparently three hundred and forty dollars for the cremation, and. It's this is just a really interesting thing. Like like he ended up like she ended up being her remains were were buried in in an actors and performers cemetery in Westchester County, New York. And so it's so it's not like he was collecting them as some morbid fan thing. Like he I'm uh, there's a quote here that says uh quote even if you don't know the person you develop a relationship as strong as that sounds. Um when in reference to him pursuing an autograph for her uh, of hers for about 15 years like he kind of he goes on to say uh quote i became disgusted with myself here i am chasing an autograph that's a person not an autograph she's a human being with hopes and dreams just like anyone else so that's kind of an interesting interesting piece of trivia about this actress and i and i've seen this kind of in passing on various twilight zone Websites and it's just it's an interesting piece of uh, trivia about about uh, this actress who became somewhat of a recluse and and introvert after she retired from acting and that's a real shame because as I'll get into my review she was she was very talented I, I thought that she did a great job in this episode um, even though I don't I don't know if that's a really I don't know if I don't know if that's a really widely um, shared opinion judging at least from the Twilight Zone companion. Uh, so to round out the cast, uh, Shepard Strudwick played Peter Selden. And uh, this was his only episode of the Twilight Zone. He played Victor Lord on the soap opera One Life to Live. And he actually he actually took over that role from Ernest Graves, who uh, passed away six months after Strudwick himself passed away. So that's... That's kind of an interesting piece of trivia, I suppose. Writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and I couldn't really find anything about his process with writing this, but um, this was a this was an original Rod Serling um, script. And director for this episode was Alvin Ganser. This is his third of four um, Twilight Zone episodes. The next will the next and last we'll see if his work in the show is in the mighty the mighty Casey here in a few weeks. All right, so now we've come to my feelings as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone. And what I want to start off by saying is that what I knew beforehand was nothing at all. <laughs> I honestly, I thought this episode was about evil children and I I just assumed that it was about evil children. Um like I kind of had it in my head the I think it was is a Village of the Damned, I believe. Um, a village of the damned type of story where kids decide to take vengeance on um, the adults in a town. I, I think I had those two the the plot of that 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 movie confused with this, or what I understand of that movie um, confused with with this episode. Judging from the title, so that's a just a long winded way of saying I had no idea what I was getting into with this episode um, at all. So. That's always kind of a fun mental exercise for me, at least, is to kind of 
take the take the title of the episode and have the kind of whatever I have in my head about it that I've heard in passing and uh, see what I can think think what see what I think it will come up as. So to start off on a technical level, this episode is kind of straightforward. Um, there's not really much of anything that's really stands out in terms of the film technique or anything. It kind of, I mean, it's all, it's all secluded to one, to one location, the apartment and the hallway as well. So there isn't really that much opportunity for inventive or exciting camera angles or camera tricks or anything like that. It's kind of a, kind of just a straightforward play. Um, on display here between two characters, um, really two characters at a time since the three leads aren't in the same room together in any scenes. But one, one technical aspect of it that I kind of want to highlight is the audio of, uh, of Marky singing, uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Um, it's such a simple idea. It's such a simple thing to just put in this kind of, almost ghostly song of this little child singing the song. Like it's, it's so simple and so straightforward, but I thought that that was pretty effective. It's, it kind of makes the episode take on this very eerie kind of feeling. Like, you know, that we know, we know at that point, like right off the bat, this, this kid is not right. This kid, there's something up with this kid. And so that made it just feel kind of eerie and unsettling. And the fact that it's just a simple piece of audio just kind of makes makes its effectiveness on me, at least, all the more impressive. Now, of course, that could just be because I went into this episode expecting some creepy, creepy story of kids, you know, controlling adults or, or killing adults or something like that. So maybe I brought in my own bias into it, but... I thought that it was an effective an effective tool to kind of I wouldn't say ratchet up the suspense because it's kind of it barely hits the middle ground of of suspense suspenseful suspenseful viewing this episode does but it kind of it brings it brings you into um to a level in this episode that for me at least like it it brought me to a point of interest in this episode and it kind of hooked me into it um, more than the scenes with with Helen and Marky or the inclusion of Peter. So, as far as the plot is concerned, in this in this episode of the Twilight Zone, the the blocked memories angle it's it's a really interesting one for the show to play with and explore. I I really like the idea of a character with repressed memories who is unlocking a secret from their past. Like that's that in itself in broad terms is just a really intriguing concept for drama and for suspense. That's, it's just, it's, I don't know that, that story element is something that I latch onto. Unfortunately, in execution of that, of that plot element, the story of this episode just did not grab me that well. Um, it didn't really grab me hardly at all that much. Um, if you take away the Marky character entirely, the episode becomes this straightforward suspense story 
with a mystery at its center that it's almost purposely not concealed or, or hidden in any way. I mean, from the moment that Peter enters the, enters the scene, I mean, it's by design, by the, by the writing of the screenplay. Like it's, it's clear, like, yes, he's the, he's the man who murdered this woman's mother and he's coming back to silence or get a, get a read on whether or not she remembers or whatever. Like he is, he's there. He's not there for, you know, uh, to take care. Uh, he's there to take care of her in quotes rather than, you know, be concerned about her well-being in any way. And it's just, it's just kind of a really straightforward premise, really straightforward story. Um, at times it kind of felt like it could have been, it, it kind of felt like it would have been more at home in like a, an Alfred Hitchcock presents episode. Um, just slightly. Um, because everything about it is so straightforward. Um, that's not a knock on Alfred Hitchcock presents obviously, but I mean, it's played so straight and it's so grounded in reality. That's, that's what I mean by that. It's such a grounded story without the marquee character that it doesn't quite feel like the twilight zone to me. It feels just like the story of this woman realizing, um, or unlocking a piece of her personal history. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just, it just didn't hook me. It just didn't do anything for me. And it was kind of just straightforward. But the point of the entire episode, the, that's, the mystery isn't necessarily the point of the episode. The point of the episode is how we deal with trauma and how we can heal ourselves of our emotional scars, whether it be by concealing our memories or, or uh, blocking out memories or if it's by creating, like manifesting this, uh, this person in front of us to, to, uh, help us cope with those, those memories and help us unlock those, those secrets of our, uh, that we hide from ourselves. And the Twilight Zone covers that aspect of the story pretty well. I really, I really enjoyed the scenes between Marky and Helen. I thought that those were the standout sequences of the entire episode. And, um, Terry Burnham's performance was phenomenal. I'll, I'll get to that in a bit, but the fact that the Twilight Zone handled that part of it well, the, the kind of supernatural part of it pretty well for me, um, that makes it so I can forgive, I can forgive the episode. It's, it's weak mystery and, and kind of flat, um, antagonist character. I just, I, I can forgive it, but not too much. Um, I still would have liked more mystery uh, along with the suspense or, or a little bit more depth to, to that story because we're kind of introduced to this mystery of who killed Helen's mother by being introduced to the fact that her mother was murdered. It's it's kind of a sudden thing. It kind of it doesn't it doesn't have room to breathe um, for me or for the audience and. It raises some questions for me upon rewatching it. It just it just kind of made me wonder what Peter's intentions are. Uh, he hands her uh, the picture of herself as a child, and this at this point it's almost as if he's trying to he's trying to heal her memories. He's trying to like push her along to where she can she can remember what he what he is and what he did. And that, and that gives the episode a little bit more of a sinister tint to it because if he wants her to remember so that he has an excuse to kill her, that raises some interesting uh, pieces of 
characterization that was left off the page and off the film, but it's something that can be thought about like in a could be more suited for a nice thought exercise after it. Like I just feel like there's something to the idea of him showing, like trying to get her to remember. Um, it's, it's almost like the idea that he murdered someone is something that he's carried, carried the weight of for so many years. Um, and it's not that it would be guilt. It's, it's not a guilt thing because he doesn't seem very remorseful at all, (laughs) obviously. Um, because he tries to murder Helen, but the idea of the fear of the ticking time bomb that is Helen for him, um, it makes me more interested in the Peter character when I think about the Peter character rather than when I see the Peter character in the episode. Like I'm putting together pieces in my head to flesh out that, to flesh out that character when there isn't much there on the page or or in the episode to really sink my teeth into. So that's on the episode, really. That's, that's really, that's really on the episode for that. And I'm just trying to kind of grasp at, maybe I'm grasping at straws, trying to find an in to, um, to get interested in the character. But I don't know. So I just, I, I like the, thought experiment that he comes to Helen so that she would remember so that he would have an excuse to kill her so that he, he could murder her. Um, but if you go with that route, that also makes me wonder why he wouldn't just straight up murder her. Uh, why does she need to remember, uh, remember what it is before he murders her? Because if he knows that she has blocked out the memories, but she could very well, um, remember at any time you would think that he would just kill her outright instead of making her go through the trouble of remembering the fact that he murdered her her mother um and enough time has passed and i don't know what this says about me that i'm suggesting this but enough time has passed that i don't think that it would seem like it was a related um case but i feel like i'm putting too much I don't want to say logic because that feels like it feels like it would come across very negatively on this episode, but I'm putting too much thought into the um, too much thought in the in the wrong area of this episode into the motivations of characters that, frankly, the motivations weren't that that well drawn out or that that fleshed out really. But the more sinister idea of behind this behind this all is the fact that he's been keeping tabs on her he's been following her and and checking in on her from time to time and if you kind of extrapolate that against the dialogue between Marky and Helen earlier where she says where Marky suggests that uh have you ever seen someone that you think that you thought you recognized I kind of like the idea of that Peter has been just following her around and stalking her for a long time. And she is, she is so blocked out her memory of the night and of him that she sees these, she sees this man occasionally just on the street in passing who is stalking her and, and watching her, um, closely without even knowing that, that it was, uh, that it is what he's doing. Again, this is me putting more more 
effort into the story than what is there on in the episode, though. That's more me piecing things together. So I don't know where that where that leaves us, to to be honest. But I will say, as far as the characterization of Helen, um, I thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. I, I really like how reluctant she is to accept the truth about Marky. Uh, some of that could be seen as just padding the episode, making for uh, dramatic detours or or not detours, but padding out the the drama a little bit. But I like how she's confronted with the idea that, okay, well, she's Marky. She can't be Marky because Marky's right there. Uh, was just having hot chocolate. Like all of these bizarre things are happening. And maybe it's the fact that there isn't much emphasis on the bizarre occurrences because it's trying to, the episode is trying to have its cake and eat it too, by introducing this dramatic mystery element of the backstory of the main character and also have this creepy, um, otherworldly or all-knowing child. It's like you don't really when you're when you're splitting between these two things. It doesn't really give you much time to uh, really develop either one, um, either one throughout the episode, especially with such a small runtime. But having said that, again, I like how reluctant she is to accept it, and I, I like how deflective she is about it. She's a very grounded character. She's very um, she's very much, it seems almost as if the supernatural element of the story is not at all on her radar at all. It's just something that's like, okay, well it can't be, she can't be, that can't be a picture of her because she just saw that girl and she can't be, uh, she can't be experiencing this because, it's not explainable. It's not logical. It's not something that, that is normal in her, in her life. And Peter not being able to hear the song is something that she can't, she can't reconcile in her mind. When she delivers that line where she says, um, when she screams at Peter for not being able to hear Marky singing, it comes from a place of fear. And I I like that. I like, I like when a character has that type of motivation and that type of, um, layer to their, to, to their arc. But like everything else in this episode, it just wasn't given enough time. It, it just wasn't developed enough for me because it's juggling with, with so many different things and it's competing with other elements of the story. And as far as the character of Peter is concerned, he's kind of at a disadvantage. Um, from everyone in the story. Uh, Shepard Strudwick, he does, he does an okay job. He does, he does just okay. Um, but he is kind of the weak link of the episode here and of the story. And it's not because of his performance per se. It's, it's not because he did anything inherently wrong or, or anything off putting. It's just because his character is not that fleshed out. It's his character. Not only is not, developed that well but from the moment that he's on screen we're like well yeah he he murdered the mother that's obviously the point that this episode is getting to it's not like i can't understand i can't fathom the idea that anyone um would be able to think like oh i wonder what his story is like after finding out that her mother was murdered and suddenly this man appears like obviously they're pointing to her to him being the killer and there's going to be some type of 
uh, conflict going forward. And if, I mean, if you're listening to this and you, you were wondering whether or not um, Peter was the killer, then good for you, man. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but it just did not work for me. Um, having said that, t- toward the end when he delivers his confession to uh, Helen, uh, he becomes a bit more of an imposing figure and he becomes a, he becomes, he comes in a, a danger to the character. Like, like that's when he, like the gloves are off. He, his intentions are made even more clear because, or his intentions are spoken outright rather than being just kind of obvious for the audience. Really everyone except for obvious for everyone except for Helen. But, um, but yeah, when he delivers that, that monologue about confessing to the murder and everything, when he says it, there's, there's one line of, there's one little addition to the dialogue that I thought was a, was a nice touch, um, from a writing standpoint is that when he re- references Helen's mother at one point, he says, rest her soul. And it's just, it's such a weird, it's such a weird thing to include. Like you're sitting there confessing to a murder and then you say almost, it's not like an, it's not like a tongue in cheek thing. It's not like a, it's not like a, it's not really fully genuine. It just feels like a, an interesting layer to the dialogue that he's, he's confessing to murdering this woman, but he still has the, I guess, respect to, uh, to say rest her soul. Um, when he is the one that has murdered her, it's just, it's, I thought that was a nice touch to kind of really kind of make him more sinister, um, there than he would be otherwise. I thought that that was a nice touch. The kind of big moment where there's the scuffle and the altercation, that's, it's fine. Like I said, there's nothing really from a technical aspect that really stood out to me as far as the choreography or anything, um, about this episode. It, It was fine. And the ending scene with the, or not, not necessarily the ending scene, but, uh, the transition scene from the the denouement scene, I guess, where the two police officers are are speaking it. First of all, just the fact that they explain the condition for the audience is just, it's, that doesn't seem in keeping with the twilight zone at this point in, in my viewing of it. It really doesn't. It's just because they're, they're attributing, they're attributing like normal logic and, and, and medical condition and, and mental health conditions to this story of, of a supernatural occurrence. And it just, it just doesn't mesh with my expectations of the twilight zone because they're assigning that, like they're saying, yes, the Marky character was a manifestation of Helen's subconscious in order to, you know, take, her memories and show her her memories to protect her and everything. And that it just seems like something the twilight zone didn't need. The twilight zone is a show that has such a, such a great supernatural and, and otherworldly thing. I mean the, the term, the twilight zone is itself a descriptor for like an otherworldly place. Like that, like that's the sandbox that, that Serling and everyone involved in the show is playing in. And yet this episode is making it a grounded in reality story. And that just didn't mesh with me. That, that did not, that didn't satisfy me. I would have rather had it be this ambiguous thing 
um, this ambiguous occurrence where the kid is this unanswered entity is is a question that's left unanswered throughout the um, throughout the end of the episode and something to kind of keep us pondering about. Um, having said all that, the the two police officers um, basically explaining to the audience all but staring at staring into the camera and telling us, Hey, this was, this kid was a manifestation of her mind. Um, it kind of reminded me of the ending of psycho. Um, that's, that's not really that interesting. I just, it just reminded me of the ending of psycho as for performances. I mentioned Shepard Strudwick and, uh, Janice rule as Helen. I thought she did a, I thought she did a fine job. Um, just, like I said, that that bit of fear in her delivery of the lines when she's talking to Peter about Marky singing, like that's that's for me, that's her that's her standout moment in in the episode, and that's that's a shame because that character has so much drama to draw from. That that's the story has so much so much there for a, a good to get a great performance out of out of an actor, but I just think that the that the script didn't allow for that as much as it could have also just the fact that i mean like she did a fine job shepherd strudwick was okay but i mean this episode was terry burnham's episode all the way um her performance was outstanding i really thought she did a great job and if you disagree with me tell me why like i can see her being like kind of annoying and and a little obnoxious and there there's clearly some like rough edits where they had to kind of cut around her not her acting but like it felt like there wasn't that much like room like like there are a couple like really quick cuts where they where the camera cuts to a close-up of her just reciting the lines and it's it's clearly like like they couldn't get they could i i can't really say if this is the case but it just felt like it felt like they couldn't get her performance right so so they had to work on it and get it later like like there's no like it didn't like in that instance and some other instances throughout it, it seemed more like they were shooting for her for her stuff and then um shooting Janice uh, Janice rules scenes around it if that makes if that makes any sense um it wasn't that distracting and I don't know if I'm articulating it that well it just felt like there were some quick edits to close-ups of of Marky speaking um which I mean, that's that's what you get for child actors. That's that's the risk you run with child actors is maybe they're not as versatile as as an adult actor, obviously. Or for all I know, that could have been just a a narrative choice or, or conscious choice by uh, Alvin Ganser. I don't know. But as far as Terry Burnham's performance, as I said, it's it's really really great. I I really like the way that she is almost demanding of Helen. Um, there's a way that there's a way, there's a manner to her delivery that just seems like she is, she's in charge of this woman. Um, and the woman could not be more confused about the situation, but she is demanding her to remember she's, she, it's almost, it almost comes across at a couple times as if, as if she's interrogating Helen. And then at other times, like, like she, like, uh, Burnham, Burnham really plays up the impatience of Marky really well as she's, as Helen is struggling to remember or is completely flummoxed by, uh, Marky's bizarre behavior. And then, and then there are, there's like an instance where Marky is 
terrified. It's when Peter arrives or when Peter is walking up the stairs, he, she freaks out and she runs out the back, the back door. And that's, I don't know, just, just the range, the range of, uh, performance that, that they got out of Terry Burnham in this episode, I was impressed with. But having said that, I can see how she could be kind of annoying and a little obnoxious and everything. So to each their own, let me know what you thought of, uh, Terry Burnham's performance in this episode. I would love to hear some feedback on that. So as far as like cultural subtext or the theme of the episode, as I kind of alluded to or said earlier in the review, this episode seems to be pretty much about overcoming trauma and how your mind or the twilight zone itself can be a healing factor to that. It can, it can heal your emotional scars and it can protect you from, from, well, in this case, from your physical demise, but also it can protect you from, you know, living um, and guarded and, and um, life without with, life of mystery um, with mystery surrounding a pivotal moment of your life, I guess. And another thing that I, I want to give credit to this episode for is that the first act of the episode um, the writing is, is pretty, pretty great. Uh, the first act can be viewed as simply a woman alone in her apartment after seeing a man she thought she recognized on the street. And the way that the writing is, is handled and the way that it's, uh, the way that everything is conveyed in that first act, like you can, you can erase Marky from the entire, from the entire first act. And this episode becomes an episode about a woman reflecting on the weird familiarity she had with a guy passing on the street. Like at the, if you view it this way, the dialogue between her and Marky can be kind of a personification of her inner monologue while she pieces together her memory. Um, so I just thought that like you can find ways to ground this even further in reality is what I'm trying to say. And I thought that the writing in that instance was, was pretty strong. Um, and and I enjoyed that aspect of it um, as much as I could, at least. This episode I wasn't too keen on overall, but I found bits and pieces to um, enjoy about it. Um, trivia for this episode, I only have a few things. Um, the little girl at the end of the episode that Helen speaks to after everything everything has happened, uh, that's the acting debut of Morgan Brittany, who was apparently... Uh, um, known for her role in Dallas, the the TV show. Um, someone interesting. I never watched Dallas. It was a little, it was a lot before my time. So I was never really uh, one for that show. Also the character of Helen Foley, the name, uh, has a couple pieces of interesting trivia attached to it in the, it's a good life segment of the twilight zone movie. Uh, the main character is named Helen Foley. And she also portrays a school teacher. And Helen Foley was also the name of a of a, one of Rod Serling's favorite teachers at Binghamton High School. And also the main performance theater at that school is uh, named after her. So overall, this episode has its... I don't know if I want to say highs and lows, but it, it has its kind of... It has its heights that meets that meets its kind of bits of a little bit above 
average for me. There's a better way to word that. <laughs> this episode reaches above average status to me here and there a little bit, but it also has its lows and it's it's a little bit of a disappointment for me. Uh, Terry Burnham's performance is the best part of the episode by far for me. And even with that performance and, and that element to the story that I kind of thought was interesting, the episode other than that didn't really grab me as much as I would have, as much as I would have liked it to. And that's unfortunate, but I mean, it's bound to happen. Um, there was just something I couldn't really, I couldn't really connect to in this episode. Okay, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 175 of The Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You know, there's three or four big battle scenes in Braveheart, and this was comparable, if not exceeds, any one of those. Mm-hmm. And that's this is one episode of a TV show that has 67 episodes. You can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV175. All right, and this week's bonus review is for the 1963 movie The Yellow Canary, which is available in its entirety on YouTube in some pretty less than stellar video quality but i mean it's watchable in its entirety on on youtube and uh i highly recommend getting like a chromecast or amazon fire stick or something because i just cast it to my to my tv from my phone and that works really well so i'm going to go ahead and read a quick uh plot description for the yellow canary which was written of course by rod serling it's based on a novel titled Evil Come, Evil Go by Whit Masterson. And the plot is, according to IMDb, Andy is an arrogant pop singer about to be divorced by his wife who treats his staff badly. On the same night he starts a job at a theater in Los Angeles, his infant son is kidnapped. Despite requests from the lead police officer on the case, Lieutenant Bonner, Paxton plays along with the kidnappers as as they string him along even though they are willing to kill so I, I don't really. I feel like I don't really have much to say about this movie. I wasn't terribly impressed with it, and it just there could have been any factors to that. But I just it just it just didn't connect with me that much. Um, it's fairly interesting as a drama and as a mystery. Uh, the way it, at least it's it's much more interesting and satisfying as a drama than. Um, nightmare as a child was but the way that there's from the outset the main character of andy he is i mean he's portrayed as just he's he's not a likable character and that's something that i enjoy about this about this movie is that it's you're following a character that is inherently not a very likable protagonist but he is in a he's in a situation that really makes you incredibly sympathetic and and really uh hopeful because I mean, obviously the infant is, it's an infant. Like, you know, you got to root for them to get the kid to get back safely. Um, even if his dad is not the uh, most likable character, um, the way that Andy, like Andy, like very early in, uh, as soon as he finds out about the kidnapping, like he 
is very quick to say that he'll pay anything. And um, this is really not that interesting of, of, um, of, of a takeaway from that. But it reminded me vaguely of the Kurosawa movie uh, High and Low, which dealt with a kidnapping and upper class versus lower class and um, the class struggles and, and things. Um, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I remember liking it quite a bit. And this movie doesn't really, um, I was sitting there thinking of other movies while watching this movie. So that should tell you what, how I felt about the yellow canary, but really at the end of the day, not much about this movie really stood out to me, um, from a plot perspective, but I will say that the dialogue itself is just tremendous. It's, it's really, it's really great dialogue. Um, there are some fantastic moments where the police scold the main character or, or they butt heads with, with Andy, um, as far as how he's reacting to the situation and, and to the, uh, to, to everything. He, his reaction to things is just making them really angry and, and getting some really great, uh, reactions out of them. And, it just made me really want that to be the main focus of the entire movie. Like it wanted, I wanted it to be more of a police procedural and in a pol- and a, uh, a police story about an interfering character in an investigation like that. I, I wanted that to be the focal point of the entire movie. Unfortunately, those scenes are kind of few and far between. They're not, they're not the focus of the movie that much from what I remember. Um, but the interactions involving the police are without question, the high point of the movie for me. And I would say that the movie is worth checking out for, for the dialogue, for the, for those sequences and for that element of it. But honestly, there's not really much else for me to recommend in this movie. And there's not really much that I can say really stood out to me. Um, it's just, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's just okay. It's not a bad movie, but it just didn't really do anything for me aside from the dialogue. So once again, that is available on YouTube in its entirety. It's the yellow canary from 1963 written by Rod Serling. And that'll about do it for this week's episode of anthology. Uh, next week, um, Actually, I don't know if it'll be next week because um, I may need to take a brief hiatus from the podcast because next week is actually Heartland Film Festival, which I'm going to be covering extensively. I have PTO off from work or I have PTO from assigned for Heartland so I can take time off of work to go experience the festival. So I can't guarantee that I'll have time to sit down and, and crank out an episode of Anthology. So... I would say don't I would I would say uh the next episode will likely come in a couple of weeks uh probably early November and I apologize for the kind of lack of output that I've uh, had lately I've just been really busy between Shocktober and now Heartland's coming up it's just it's a very busy time for me so I'm trying to do the best I can but next week or next episode I should say on the podcast It'll be episode 25 in which I will be reviewing A Stop at Willoughby, 
uh, the 30th episode from the Twilight Zone's first season. And that's an episode that I'm really looking forward to. I don't know that much about it, but I, what I do know about it is that it is something that seems like it would be right up my alley and something that I can... I'll be really excited to review here on the podcast. And for my bonus review uh, in that episode, I'm going to be reviewing Patterns, the 1956 Rod Serling movie. Um, yeah, and and I'm really excited for that as well. So having said all that, once again, if you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes and a rating. And if you really like what you hear, um please donate to the podcast <laughs> at anthologypod.com. Just click the donate button or check the show notes of this, of this episode or past episodes. And also check out my bonus reviews of black mirror, which um, again, I don't know what kind of output I'm going to have for that in the next week or so, but they're, they are coming and I'm really enjoying doing them. So without further ado, thank you guys for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.